Good morning. I'd like you to turn in your Bible to today's scripture passage. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. As you may know, we're working our way through the Apostle Paul's letter to the followers of Christ in that first century city of Ephesus. And we're focused in on what it means to take the next step as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Last week's passage ended with a challenge for all of us as Christians to look at where we find our basic identity, how we define ourselves, how we might answer the question, who am I? For example, how would you define who, who I am? You could define me by my gender and say that I am a man. You could define me by my race and say that I am a, a white man. Or by my sexuality and say that I'm a heterosexual white man. A lot of people want to define themselves by those three things today, by their gender, by their race, by their sexuality. It's very important to them. But you could add my ethnic heritage and say I'm a heterosexual white man of German and Danish descent. You could define me by my age and say I'm a heterosexual white man of German and Danish descent who's over 50. Or by my nationality and say I'm an American. Or by my relationships and say I'm a husband, father, brother, son, cousin, neighbor. You could define me by my job, my vocation, and, and call me pastor. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of ways you could try and define who I am. Well, which is the most accurate? Which one is the most important? Which one might reveal my true, my most essential identity? Now turn that question around. How would you define yourself by your gender, by your race, by your sexuality, by your age, by your nationality, your job title, or, or whatever? What word or image first comes into your mind when you try to describe yourself? Do you immediately think, well, I'm a mom or I'm a dad, I'm a so-and-so's husband or wife or son or daughter, I'm a chemist, I'm a student, I'm a, in finance or I do IT. Is that what defines you? Is that what reveals your true, most essential identity? Throughout Ephesians, Paul hammers home on this theme that once you give your life to Christ, a change takes place in your basic identity. From now on, you are to find your most basic, most essential self in your relationship with Christ. That's the main thing that defines you. That's the first thing that should pop into your mind. I belong to Christ. I'm, I'm His. I'm a child of God. You have to kind of throw that switch in your brain and recognize your new identity in Christ because everything flows from that. You see yourself in a new way as you begin to recognize all that Christ has done for you, all that Christ means to you. You're forgiven. You're His possession. You're surrounded by mercy, enveloped by grace. You're encircled by Christ's love. And if that is true, then there has to be a change in the, how you think, how you think about yourself and how you think about other people. That's really the very first step of discipleship. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in that way. We do so no longer, and therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. Well, what's the worldly point of view that he's talking about? What's well, all those external things, race and gender, you know, what have you? All those things people use to define and categorize others, all the things that, that you used to use to define yourself. 
Paul says no to all that. You are a new creation in Christ, and that is your most basic identity. So let's now continue in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 18, and see what Paul says is the next step in living out your new identity in Christ. Verse 18. For through Christ, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Last weekend, we had a group of 12 men return from their mission trip to Mexico. They were working with Amora Ministries, one of our long-standing partners. It builds simple houses for homeless families in cooperation with the local Mexican churches. Ian Rankin was on the trip, and so I kind of got the scoop from him on, on how it went. And this was an ambitious group because they had decided beforehand to build a double house, basically combining two standard 11 by 22 foot houses together into a double wide. And that's a lot to accomplish in one week. And the only way they could do it was if someone else laid the concrete foundation ahead of time so that it would cure and dry properly. But what happened was the foundation wasn't quite square and true. But they decided to go ahead and build and, and sort of fix it along the way. Well, from what I understand, everything went fine until they got to try to put on the roof. And that was a big problem. Because the foundation wasn't square, the roof was just really off kilter. So it was a mess. They had to get very creative and cut a lot of extra boards and patch and do all kinds of things to try and get that roof to go on right. It was a, it was a frustrating job that ended up taking a whole extra afternoon to finish, all because the foundation wasn't right. That's the simple but profound truth that Paul is talking about in today's passage. You have to build your life on the, route fight, on the right foundation. If the foundation is off, if the foundation isn't square and true, then things in your life are going to be lopsided and out of sync, out of alignment, and eventually in danger of collapse. In verse 20, he says that there are two essentials upon which God wants to build your faith. He says, faith is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Well, cornerstones. Uh, we don't think much about cornerstones today because mostly they're purely a cosmetic thing, you know, where you carve in stone the date that a building is, is being dedicated or maybe put a time capsule behind it for some future generation to discover. We have a cornerstone like that out on the lower right-hand corner of the exterior of our sanctuary in New Providence. It has the date 1739 to commemorate when the very first church building was erected on this property. But in ancient times, cornerstones were vital to the construction of a building. The cornerstone was the main stone placed at the corner of any new edifice. It had to be perfectly laid and precisely laid because all other measurements and alignments and angles for the rest of the entire building were based on the position of that stone. 
It was usually larger than any other part of the foundation because the weight of the building literally rested on that stone. If it was off by just a little, then the whole building would be off. And Paul says Jesus is that cornerstone for your faith. And the teachings of the apostles then makes up the foundation. Your spiritual life and the life of the whole church rests on those two things. Now Paul wasn't the first one to use this metaphor of the cornerstone. The idea of the Messiah as the cornerstone of God's plan of salvation, it has deep roots into the Old Testament. There's, a, there's that great description in, in Psalm 18. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the great word from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 28, 16. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. It will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe the same event where Jesus appropriated these two scriptures about the cornerstone for himself in a parable he told about the vineyard. Uh, Jesus appropriated this title for himself. He claimed to be the cornerstone, the very foundation of God's plan of salvation. From an Old Testament prophecy point of view, that was a really big deal, and it ticked a lot of people off. Jesus is the cornerstone. So Paul just simply picks up on that image, and then later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter repeats the exact same message in 1 Peter chapter 2. And when something is repeated like that throughout the Scriptures, from the Old Testament and on into the New Testament, and both the Gospels and the Epistles, that means we should really pay attention to it. The essential cornerstone of our faith is the very person and saving work of Jesus Christ. Your growth as a Christian depends on him, and nothing else can take his place. And Paul says that cornerstone, Jesus, is intimately connected to the foundation, which is the teaching of the apostles. Well, who are the apostles? That would be an important thing to know. Well, if you remember in the Gospels, Jesus chose 12 of his followers to be in this inner circle, to be in a more direct relationship with him. In Luke chapter 12, it says this, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. The, the word apostle means the sent ones. These 12 then, minus Judas Iscariot, who, as it said, betrayed Jesus and then committed suicide, they became the 11 who, after the resurrection, were commissioned by Jesus in Matthew 28 to go and spread the gospel to all nations. They were given this leadership role because they were the ones who had walked and talked with Jesus every day during his three-year preaching ministry. And as you read the book of Acts, we see that Paul then was also added to that list of those who were called or considered to be apostles, those chosen by God to spread the gospel throughout the ancient world. 
And that is how Paul identified himself in many of his letters, as an apostle chosen by God. That's how he identified himself in the very first verse of this letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1. Starts off, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So if those are the apostles and their teaching forms the foundation of our faith, well, how do we know what their teaching is? Well, that wasn't really a problem in the early years of the church because the apostles were still alive and their teaching went out in person. The apostles wrote down or, dedicate, or dictated their teachings you know, in gospels and in histories and in letters. And those letters and gospels were copied and shared throughout the ancient churches. But eventually, all of the apostles, including Paul, were, were killed for spreading their faith. All of them died as martyrs for their faith in Jesus, except John, who was banished to the Isle of Patmos and died there as an elderly man. So the next generation of the church had a problem, because many people were taking what the apostles taught about Jesus and were changing it, adding their own stuff, altering or, or mangling the gospel entirely. False teachers, secret societies, and rogue splinter groups were a real problem in the first centuries of the church, and quite frankly, that problem continues to this day. Plenty of false teachers and splinter groups around today who use the name of Christ but distort the gospel. People who take the original message of Christ and the apostles and twist it for their own purposes. False teaching always has something in common. They either take something away from the person and the work of Christ or in some way try to add to what Christ did as though what he did was not sufficient for our salvation. False teaching always either diminishes the person of, and work of Christ or attaches something else to Jesus that just doesn't belong. The early church knew it had to do something about this in order to preserve the original authentic teaching of the apostles. So in the year 325 AD, they had a big gathering. It was called the Council of Nicaea. And long story short, they did two very important things. First, they clarified what it is that original true Christianity teaches, especially about the person and the work of Christ. And they put it down on paper, and it's now called the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed that we have often recited here. The Nicene Creed defines what Christianity is. People don't have to believe it, but if they don't endorse and accept the Nicene Creed, then they should at least have the intellectual integrity to not call themselves Christian. Be universalists or Unitarians, but, but don't call yourself Christian because that name is already taken. And this is a big problem in our world today because there are lots of people who want to use the name of Jesus, but then who, who actually deny or weaken who Jesus really is. Lots of people doing religious-sounding things in church buildings who, who no longer believe what the apostles taught and what the early church affirmed about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. And I've talked about this many times before, so I don't want to go into it too much today. Just to recommend a great book uh, that goes into this topic in death, it's uh, Michael Horton's Christless Christianity. I, I'd recommend that to you if you want to go deeper. But the Council of Nicaea made the first universal statement that defined what the Christian faith is. And it affirmed loud and clear that Jesus 
is the only cornerstone for building the church. The second thing that the Council of Nicaea did was that they vetted the documents that claimed to be of apostolic origin, which contained the teachings of the apostles. Those documents are what we read today as the New Testament. You see, in the first two centuries following Christ, there were hundreds of documents that claimed to either be written by the apostles or in some cases even written by Jesus himself. I mean, anybody could write anything and claim whatever they wanted. I mean, there were no copyright laws back then. You know, every once in a while you'll see advertised a new book or a new TV show on the Discovery Channel on some, you know, secret gospel, some ancient document that supposedly casts doubt on the New Testament because it tells a different story or teaches a different truth than what we read in the New Testament. As though this is, you know, this is new news and it's going to cause some kind of a scandal. Folks, there is nothing new about any of those documents. They were all well known during the time of the Council of Nicaea. Those other Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary, they were all examined and proven to be phonies. I mean, just bogus forgeries, imitations of the real thing. They contained the fanciful teachings of people who were gathering their own followers into a, a whole host of, of sects and splinter groups like, like the Gnostics. They took Jesus' name and used it to disguise their own self-made philosophies like, like cult leaders do today. So the Council of Nicaea had to sort all that out, and they were vigilant and vigorous in authenticating the documents that would become the New Testament. It had to be proven beyond a doubt that the document was of apostolic origin, otherwise it was rejected. And there are many good documents, many helpful and insightful uh, spiritual documents that were not included in the New Testament because they didn't meet the high standards set by the church. Because if the apostles' teaching is supposed to be the very foundation of the church, then it was their job to make absolutely 100% sure that the documents included in the New Testament were unquestionably and directly linked to an apostle. That's why you can trust the New Testament to be reliable because it comes from those who actually knew Jesus and were eyewitnesses to his ministry and to the growth of the early church. Two essentials on which the Christian faith stands. Jesus the cornerstone and the apostles' teaching recorded for us in the New Testament as the foundation. And now it's time to build your faith. Now that you recognize your new identity in Christ, now that you see yourself first and foremost as a child of God, now that your salvation and your future and your hope are in Christ, now that the cornerstone and the foundation for your faith have been laid, it's time to build. Paul ends this passage with this. He says, In him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. If you belong to Christ, then God is already at work in your heart through the Holy Spirit, renovating, reconstructing, renewing. Let him do his job. Begin every day this week with just a few minutes of prayer, right when you get up or, or sometime before you get too far into your day. Just thank God that you belong to him, that your identity is found in Christ. Then just invite the Holy Spirit to work in your heart that day. 
give the Spirit room to do His job. Maybe then read a little bit from Ephesians chapter 3 that we'll be talking about next week. And think about what it might mean during the day. And throughout the day, look at people through the eyes of Christ with compassion and, and mercy and God's truth. And live out your faith in what you do and in, and in your thoughts. Be aware of what God is doing all around you and really appreciate your life. Be at peace and rest on the essentials, the sure foundation and the cornerstone of your faith, for they will hold you up. Amen.